All right, everybody, let's uh, continue in the confession today. On page 673 in your hymnal, you can pick up where we're at in chapter 5, and I am making an effort to try to speed us up through the confession a bit. So today we're going to finish out chapter 5 rather than spending months and months on it. So we're going to cover paragraphs 3 through 7. So chapter 5 on divine providence, paragraphs 3 through 7. That is page 673, I believe. All right, let's read the confession, uh, paragraphs 3, yes, 3 through 7 of chapter 5. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures, And not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon him, himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden. From them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal uh, gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan." whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of His church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. Amen. Let's pray briefly. Father, as we come together again to close off our our time together this Lord's Day, to be instructed from the doctrine of your word, we pray that you would 
cause us to rightly divide the word of truth. We don't want to speak further than your word speaks. Cause us to have humility as we approach these mysterious subjects. And yet, Father, let us declare what your word says. Let us not be ashamed of the truth. Build up your people, we pray. Instruct us in our minds so that we would be able to help and instruct others to guard against falsehood and to give you the glory that you deserve. We pray that your Spirit would be our teacher, that we would understand the things that the Spirit has written. We thank you for your mercies to us this Lord's Day. We pray that you'd continue to be with us and bless us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're picking up, as I said, in paragraph 3. We're going to finish off chapter 5 today. The last couple of uh, sessions we've had, number one, we just looked at the general overview of what providence is. Last, uh, last month, we looked at paragraph two, which dealt with the, the nature of first and second causes, God's decree as it relates to the free actions of men, things like that. Now in these following paragraphs, three through seven, uh, the confession now delves into it continues to address specific questions and issues that arise from the way that it's uh, formulated the doctrine of providence. So the confession often states something without addressing all the questions, and then in following paragraphs it will uh, address those things more particularly. And that's what these paragraphs do. So beginning in paragraph 3, we are, we're considering the subject of means. It says, God in His ordinary providence, makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. So, notice it, first of all, it describes God's providence as His ordinary providence, which means there's an extraordinary providence. But what it's speaking of here is God's usual way of working. His ordinary providence In his ordinary providence, he makes use of means. Now, when when we talk about means, uh, we're uh, we're talking about the methods that God uses or employs to bring about a result. Okay, so uh, to give you just a human example, you all right, buddy? (laughs) He looked confused. Um, oh, he's looking for the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> he looked like he was lo- asking me for something. Um, so when we talk about means, we're talking about the methods that God employs to bring about a certain result, right? So to give a human, a human example, if I intend to travel to Nevada to get there, unless I want to walk, I have to first procure a vehicle of transportation, then I have to get gas for that vehicle in order to get there, right? So the end is I want to make it to Nevada, but in order to get there, I'm going to have to employ the, the usual means of getting there. Um, that, that's what we're, we're talking about when we talk about God, God using uh, means. That by the way God has ordained and established the world in which we live, according to His wisdom... He has established ordinary means as the usual ways that he accomplishes certain ends. And that applies both in the the realm of nature and the realm of grace or salvation. Um, 
So, for instance, the way that God usually provides his creatures with food, like humans with food, usually it's not just dropping from heaven, like the way it did the manna in the wilderness. Usually, God gives us our food by the farmer sowing seed, people trading or bartering, whatever it might be, paying for those, you know, that produce, things like that. Eventually, it gets to the store, we buy it. Ultimately, all of that can still be traced back to God's providence, but it's through the ordinary means of other humans and their labors and things. Um, also, in the spiritual realm, um, the way God usually saves sinners is by raising up ministers of the gospel who proclaim the gospel. The Spirit then works by the word in their hearts, creating faith. Um, also, how a Christian grows. Usually a Christian grows not by God just kind of out of thin air imparting great, greater measures of grace, but usually a Christian grows by giving himself to what we actually call the means of grace. Right? Um, so, the more a Christian gives himself to prayer, meditation, study of Scripture, those are the means ordinarily God has employed for the Christian to grow in grace. Um, now, as I say, that's how God has set up the world to usually work. Um, and by the way, just, just, a, just a note here. This issue of means and the ends by, by, you know, that they achieve, this is usually one of the places people misunderstand Reformed theology when they're first hearing about it. And they immediately assume if your God decrees all things that basically you're a fatalist. If God has decreed the end, it doesn't matter what we do in the middle. That's a misunderstanding of how God has decreed all things to come to pass. Because God decrees not just the end, but he decrees the, the middle means of getting to those ends. And so the middle does matter. Um, and making those things clear often can help people at least not struggle as much as they might if they don't have some of those, those categories explained to them. However, so that's ordinary means. The confession also emphasizes, though, that God is not bound by these means. So, while it's true that God ordinarily has established a relationship between means and their ends, because God is free in His sovereignty, He's also free to work apart from means and without means. Um, and th this, is, this is what we would, would call God's extraordinary providence. And this would be the category, for instance, that we would put miracles under, right? Um, miracles, it's actually very interesting. It's a very difficult thing to define exactly what a miracle is. But one of the things that usually characterizes miracles is that they are an extraordinary something that works either above or against normal means. Okay, so I mentioned the manna in the wilderness uh, coming down from heaven every morning. Obviously, an extraordinary God working apart from means. Um, if you want to get from one side of a body of water to the other, usually we have to either swim or we get in, we get in a boat. Jesus can suspend the laws of gravity and whatever else so that he can actually walk across the sea, on top of the sea, and uh, make it to the other side. That, that would be an example of God working against means, right? That shouldn't work. You should step on water and you sink in the water. So God suspends that usual law, whatever you want to call it, for that. Um, 
But also sometimes God works not necessarily without or against means, but simply above ordinary means. So the feeding of the 5,000, there's still food involved. It starts with uh, two loaves, five fish, but that much food should not be able to feed 5,000 people. And so God in that instance worked above ordinary means. Uh, He does something with the ordinary means that it ought not to be able to do ordinarily. And all 5,000 people were fed. Um, So that's something about means. We can talk about that more if we have questions. Next, let's move on to paragraph 4. Paragraph 4 deals with the relationship of divine providence to sinful actions. Okay. How do we account for the presence of sin and evil in God's creation if God has ordained and decreed all things? And I just a warning, I can't go line by line in these bigger paragraphs. Like I said, I'm trying to speed it up so I go quicker through the confession. Just going to highlight kind of the key takeaways, things like that. Um, And again, if we have questions, we can maybe delve into some things that I I might kind of skip over here. But the, thing, the important thing to know, note about paragraph 4 is that the confession does, without hesitation, affirm that the providence of God extends even to the first fall of man. Okay? Um, that, that was a controversial question. Has been, but in, in the Reformation and in the time of um, the writing of the Westminster, these are things that were kicked around and there was different emphases given. Um, The confession says the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of men, uh, both of angels and men. So that's the statement. And then it gives a qualification and it adds the words and that not by a bare permission. Okay. That's, that little phrase kind of has the, the weight of a whole theological controversy behind it. Um, just as in today, you have many people who would object to the way the confession talks about providence and God's relationship to sin. In the days when the confession was being formulated, there was also people, even some within the, the Reformed councils themselves, who didn't see eye to eye on this. Um, so there were in this day... For instance, uh, some who didn't like that idea that God decreed the fall and his providence extends to the fall. And so they wanted to describe God's relationship to the fall in what they called a bare permission. Okay? A bare permission. And what they meant by that was the idea, we've seen it before, but what they meant by that was the idea that God foresaw the fall of man and he thereby permitted it to take place. That is, he didn't stop it from happening, but he didn't decree it, okay? Um, If you remember back when we looked at uh, the divine decree in chapter 3, I mentioned that there's a multitude of problems, first of all, when you want to start talking about God just merely foreknowing something or foreseeing something. Um, For instance, if you think about it logically, if God merely foreknows that the fall will happen without decreeing it, how does he foreknow that? Like, who else is providing him this, this world that's going to happen that God then says, I'm going to permit that? Without God decreeing something to come to pass, it doesn't, it doesn't come to pass. It doesn't exist. Um, 
So that separation doesn't make sense logically when you push it to its, uh, to its logical end. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, as we saw in chapter 3, God doesn't decree it a thing because he foreknows it, but he foreknows a thing will happen because he's decreed it to happen. Um, But that notwithstanding, William Perkins, um, he's called the father of the Puritans, he explained helpfully how whether you want to say God decreed the fall or whether you simply want to say God permitted the fall with a bare permission, Perkins argued both of those people end up in the same place with the same problem. Um, and he put it this way. This is a quote. I've cleaned it up because of his old English. It, it was a bit painful before, but this is the, the essence of what he said. He said, if God permits the fall, that means he chose not to hinder the fall and thus evil. And if God doesn't hinder evil, it cannot be avoided. And that which cannot be avoided shall come to pass infallibly. And therefore, he says, once God gives his permission, evil of necessity comes to pass. Which he says, wherefore, it's plain that the decree of God is no more inevitable than the idea of permission from the decree. Right? So, to explain that in kind of, you know, layman's terms, he's saying whether you want to say God decreed the fall or whether he foresaw the fall and then permitted it to happen... Either way, you have a God making it infallibly certain that the fall would happen and that all the evil and misery that comes from it will certainly happen. Right? So, in other words, God could have stopped the fall. He chose not to, either by decree or by permission. Either way, you've got God choosing not to stop the fall. And so Perkins is just saying, you might think you're getting God off the hook by saying that he just has a bare permission but he's still on the hook for seeing it and not putting a stop to it when he could. So you still have to answer the question of why. Why didn't he stop the fall from happening? Um, so that's, that's paragraph four. It's just stating that, yes, we affirm that the providence of God extends even to the first fall and all other sinful actions of men and, and angels. Um, and so one of the takeaways for us in that is that I think sometimes Christians, we know that question's coming. We know someone's going to think through logically what we're saying when we say, yeah, God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And there's this just gut reaction where we somehow feel like maybe I should try to soften it to say something other than, yeah, God decreed this to happen. But you shouldn't feel the pressure to do that because biblically speaking, God doesn't hide the fact that he's the one who decrees the day of adversity, uh, and the day of prosperity. Um, he does not try to explain away um, and get himself off the hook for that, and neither, neither should we. And in fact, it's actually a, um, what do you call it, an uh, apologetic advantage in terms of affirming the decree of God, because if God decreed something, it means he at least had a purpose in mind for it. And so we can actually say, yes, God decreed that, and here's why he decreed that. Here are the holy ends that the Scriptures reveal He did that for. Um, Whereas if you just want to say God permitted it, I don't know why, that isn't a very good apologetic uh, response. So, um, and and then it clarifies, as the confession usually does, it says, yet so, so all that being said, God decreed even the first fall, 
It clarifies, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So it wants to at least state for clarification, while God decrees sin, it is not the same as saying God is the author of sin or the doer of sin or the approver of sin. So God can decree that a sin be, but the sinfulness of that act... um, comes forth solely from the sinful nature and sinful desire of the creature. So the first cause, yes, God's decree. But we can't neglect what we saw last time about the second causes, our real causes, and what God intends for holy ends, we do for evil ends. And so both of those things are true. God decrees it, but God is not sinful in the sinful actions of his creatures. Um, those, the sin of it comes from within our, our natures. Okay, let's consider, let's consider paragraphs 5 and 6 together. Um, I'm not going to read, I've got them here, but I'm not going to read them both. Uh, let's see, where am I? Uh, yeah, we read them at the beginning, so I'll just touch on, touch on things there. Um, paragraphs 5 and 6 should be read together because they form a contrast. Uh, in fact, I probably should have made a comment on that before we read them so that you were prepared to see how they, they contrast with one another. Um, paragraphs 5 and 6 describe two very different dispositions and intentions that God has in His providence. The one towards His elect people and the second towards the wicked. Now, The Confession wants to affirm in both of those categories, God's providence extends to both of them. The trials of the people of God are to be traced back to God's hand of providence, just as the afflictions of the wicked are to be traced back to the hand of providence. However, what these paragraphs emphasize is the difference in God's heart and intention in why He employs these providences in the lives of His elect versus the lives of the wicked. Okay, um, so let's consider first paragraph 5, and then we'll move to paragraph 6. And I'm kind of just going to skim some of the high points here again. So first of all, considering God's providence in bringing afflictions, temptations towards His own people, the elect, um, the confession says for, for God's people, when, when God leaves them to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, that's the language the confession uses, the confession in uh, paragraph 5 says that he does it as a most wise, righteous, and gracious God. Okay, so when the authors are talking about God's relationship to our afflictions, they emphasize the gracious, wise character of God towards his people. That there's grace in our afflictions and temptations. There's a fatherly tenderness and care. But towards the wicked, if you look at paragraph 6, it says God acts as righteous judge. Okay? So it doesn't speak with the same tenderness of care when it talks about God's acts towards the wicked. Rather, it speaks of Him as a righteous judge, bringing further judgment on His enemies. And... Following these two, from these two dispositions, 
God's purpose and intentions are very different. Okay, so let's consider the people of God. Paragraph 5. The temptations that God exposes his people to, another word we might use are testings, uh, tests. When God exposes us to those types of things, they're for the purpose of his children's growth in faith and obedience and humility. Uh, Paragraph 5 says that God chastises them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their own hearts so that, this is a, a purpose statement, so that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. So if I could summarize all of those, that, those four statements, what the confession is saying is there's a purifying intention that God has when he tests his people. Okay? So when God brings Christians into the fires of affliction and the furnace of affliction, and we feel the flames, whether it be persecution, like the confession says, maybe God just all of a sudden makes us more aware of the... Um, the exceeding sinfulness of our remaining corruption. Uh, There's many different ways God exposes us to these things. What the confession is saying is that as God leads us into that furnace, it's not for the purpose of destruction, but for the purpose of purification. So that we would come forth more purely as purified gold or silver. Um, Such that, the confession says, what, this is the, Last sentence of paragraph 5. Whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. So that's essentially Romans chapter 8 that they're summarizing there. Uh, That is the banner that the Christian should file every one of his trials under. That this thing, whatever it is, that God has been pleased to send my way, he has sent it to me as my God who has reconciled myself to Him through Christ. And therefore, this is sent to me in love. God, uh, my Father has sent this chastisement out of love and care for my purification, my holiness. Um, they're not evidences of hatred um, or God's wrath or vengeance but of a fatherly care and a fatherly discipline towards his children. So that, the confession says, we might be humbled so that we might have a more close dependence upon God, a more careful watchfulness for all future temptations to sin, and it says for other just and holy ends. And there are many other just and holy holy ends. Um, But in other words... All the afflictions God gives to his people are medicine to his people. They don't, it, the medicine doesn't taste good in the moment, but it serves for our healing, serves for our good and our benefit. So that's chapter uh, or paragraph 5, just a summary of what, what the confession is driving at. But a very different picture is then painted for the, God's attitude, disposition, and intention towards the wicked in paragraph 6. Towards the wicked being God's enemies and God being their righteous judge because of their love for sin, it says that in his providence, God withholds his grace from them. 
Okay? So, we need to remember, first of all, sometimes people read that and they think, that doesn't sound fair. It sounds mean of God to withhold grace. We need to remember that God doesn't owe grace to anyone. Okay? If God owes grace, then we're not talking about grace anymore. We're talking about justice, right? We're talking about payment for what's owed. And that's not the realm that grace exists in. Grace is by definition something that we don't deserve. And therefore, if God gives it to some, they got what they don't deserve. And if He withholds it from others, they haven't had any injustice done to them. God has simply dealt with them in justice. We need to remember those categories. But it says that He withholds His grace. In other words, God refuses to extend to them the grace that could save them that He extends to His people. It's actually very striking and a sobering thing if you compare this paragraph to chapter 10 in in the Confession on effectual calling. This is in many ways the reverse of what effectual calling is. Um, In the chapter on effectual calling, it talks about by grace God enlightens sinners and softens their hearts. And this is in many ways the opposite of that, that God withholds His grace from the wicked and the ungodly um, and har- so that they harden their hearts and that they grow more dim in their understanding. Um, even if people sit under the same ministry of the Word under which other people are getting converted, God re- withholds from, that, uh, from them that same experience of saving grace. But that's not all the confession says. It says, also, sometimes he withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion for sin. Now, when the Puritans talked about um, God withdrawing gifts, just just a historical note, usually when they talked about God withdrawing gifts, they were talking about God removing gospel ministers. Uh, The Puritans put a high, um, I don't know what you'd call it, a high premium or whatever, uh, emphasis on the ordinary way in which God saves sinners, and that's through gospel ministers proclaiming the gospel in in preaching. Um, And because ministers, not not to say that ordinary Christians who don't hold office aren't also sharing the gospel, but they're picking up on biblical themes that usually it's the preached word that God's Spirit comes upon people in power. And so the confession is talking about God removing that kind of gift from people who reject His grace uh, continually. Um, He cuts off in His providence faithful ministers and instead often gives people what they want. He surrounds them with people who tell them what their ears want to hear. And that's actually an act of hardening on God's part removing the gifts of light so that they delve more deeply and more quickly into the ways of sin. Um, And then the next step, the confession says, after removing gifts, is he gives them over to lusts. So he exposes them to all manner of temptation which their flesh makes an occasion for sin. Um, We talked about that. In fact, I'm going to talk about it here in a second here. I'll just go there. One of the chief examples of that that we talked about last time is Pharaoh. And we talked about what does it mean that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Does that mean that 
that was done against Pharaoh's desires, or somehow does that comply with Pharaoh's desires? And we talked about how when God wants to harden a sinner, he's not creating fresh evil within their hearts, the way he's creating goodness and and righteousness within his people. But when God hardens a sinner, all he has to do is remove the existing restraints of common grace that are on that person. So with Pharaoh, God removes restraining grace. He exposes him to all manner of temptation, which having removed common grace, all of a sudden Pharaoh's heart, like an idol factory, wants to dive headlong into that so that he hardens his own heart, Exodus says. So both are true. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but through the secondary means of Pharaoh hardening his own, his own heart. Um, ultimately fulfilling the plan of God so that Pharaoh would not heed Moses' words so that God could show his power in Pharaoh and declare his name to all the world. And also so that it could, would bring further judgment upon Pharaoh for his disobedience. Um, so, that's kind of the sobering contrast of paragraphs 5 and 6. Is, and, and that's actually one thing um, that paragraph 6 ends with, is it talks about how the same means that God uses for the softening of some, the preaching of the Word, you name it, He also uses for the hardening of, of His enemies. So that two people can sit under the same type of ministry and one is being softened because of the Spirit of God granting faith, granting repentance, obedience. But this other person is just sitting, hearing more light, growing more angry in their hearts towards the truth, growing in their hatred towards the truth so that they harden themselves and bring themselves further away from God. And then lastly, just briefly, paragraph 7 As the providence of God in general reaches to all creatures, so after a more special manner it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereof. And here here the the, uh, Puritans, confession writers, are emphasizing the church is the apple of God's eye. Um, I think it was Rutherford, if I'm remembering correctly, but he, he was opening this up and he was talking about how the church... All of creation is obviously, in a sense, built by God. But in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the church being specially built. It's God's house built by God Himself. There's a special, more personal, if you will, I'm not sure if that's the best word, attachment to His church. It's the apple of His eye. And and that's what the confession is stressing here, is while providence extends to everything in the world, there is a particular care that God takes with His church, with His people, individually, but also corporately, seeing to their needs, caring for them, and disposing of all things to their, uh, to their good. So, I'm going to be done there and open it up for questions, comments, if we have any. Brandon's got a microphone if anyone wants it. Someone's got to break the ice, Brandon. Don't worry. Embrace the silence. (laughs) If not, I'll just start staring at people for a really long time. You hit on it. Whoa, that's way louder (laughs) than I thought. 
Uh, you hit on it a little bit um, about using this doctrine and making use of it in apologetics and evangelism. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit more? I mean, I have my own ideas, but I would love to hear a little bit more of how, especially in a world that's a bit nihilistic, uh, evolution, the creation of the world is through, well, other yeah. means, not a sovereign creator creating ex nihilo. So that would, yeah. I'll take a stab at it, and you tell me if it's too vague or whatever. There's a couple of things, and I'm probably going to forget the second one already. Uh, remind me the issue of evil, because I'm going to talk about the other one first. So if I forget, just remind me the issue of evil. Issue of evil. Yeah. Uh, so when I think of apologetics in terms of one of our jobs in apologetics is to show, first, not only the problems with other worldviews, but also to establish that only our worldview rightly accounts for the world that we live in, right? Um, and that, that's, uh, what's it called? The Transcendental Argument by, uh, is it, Van? yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting my seminary. Yeah, I mean, it's the argument that we're trying to not just let people know that their worldview is wrong. We're trying to show that the only worldview that actually can make sense and do justice to the world we live in is the Christian worldview of a triune God who decreed all things for his glory. And so when you talk about like means and providence, ordinary providence, ordinary means versus miracles and things like that, there's a lot of things that an, an unbeliever wants to take for for granted in their worldview that they actually can't account for. So, for instance, things like consistency. Like, most unbelievers understand that the world we live in is basically consistent. Usually, if you put something in the same test under the same circumstances, usually you'll get the same consistent result, right? But you ask them, why? Why is that? And they don't have an answer. But if you have a God who actually designed the world this way, in which ordinarily these are the way things operate because God said this is the way they would operate, but God is also free to break those rules to show His sovereignty over those things, like with miracles, the Christian can actually give an account not only for the fact that the world is consistent, but why it's consistent. It's consistent because it's ruled by a God who's orderly and so, I mean, that's one thing I think of in terms of, like, apologetics of these things, we shouldn't be afraid of where the truth will lead us. The truth will ultimately, if we understand it correctly, actually lead us to a right understanding and explanation of the world we live in. That we shouldn't be afraid to come against unbelievers from other worldviews. The second thing is the issue of evil, and that's the thing I mentioned. I don't know if that's specifically what you're referring to. But I, I was... Yeah, so... Like I said, I think Christians, sometimes we feel like we need to be embarrassed about if I say that God decrees all things, the unbeliever is going to get a, he's going to score a point by saying, oh, so God's the author of evil. And so we want to shy away and use language like God permitted, you know, whatever we want to say. And my point there is actually, I think we need to take our, put our front foot forward on that, not be ashamed to say, no, God did decree everything, including the fall, including all the sinful acts of, of angels and men. Um, because 
we should not be ashamed of that, number one. Uh, or no, I'm going to lose. If I start counting, I'm going to say I have more points than I do. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be ashamed of that because what's the alternative if God didn't decree evil? Okay? That's a problem. That's more embarrassing than saying he did. You know what I mean? Uh, so that's what I was kind of getting at in terms of an apologetic, don't be afraid of it. Obviously, yeah, we need to make qualifications. We're not saying God is the author or approver of sin. But we're also not denying that God absolutely decreed that the fall would infallibly come to pass because he had good, salvific, redemptive purposes through it for his glory, for the good of his church, the display of his attributes. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I was getting at. I'll punt it back to you if that yeah, no, was that, at all. That's, that's, that's great. Uh, I don't exactly know how the, what is it, Epicurus or whatever's trilemma, if God is willing but not able or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, you know, God is both willing and able, but sometimes when evil things happen, he has other ends yeah. in mind. So just because God didn't intervene in such and such, you, you can call him to account for, hey, yeah. how come this shooting happened? Well, it must be good if, if it happened in some way, yeah. shape, or of another. So, and then on, on uh, bringing other worldviews to account, um, uh, giving them that, you know, I can structure the world and everything that's going on and how everything plays out by a creator, and you're still putting pieces together on how it all works. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm still kind of piecing things together, how it works materialistically, but I can piece together that all things work for good according to God's sovereign will. Um, and then maybe if nobody else has a follow, I had a follow-up question of how does this doctrine especially comfort the believer? Real quick, I just noticed Aaron was raising his hand. Before we change subjects, were you going to... What's that? Okay. It wasn't related to the last point. Okay. Yeah, so how does this doctrine... Directly, or especially, how does it not comfort the believer? You know, I mean, Romans eight twenty eight. Um, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called to according to His purpose. From eternity past, predestination, foreknowing, to in time justification, calling, and then future glorification. All of that is rooted in the sovereign commitment of God and his goodness to his people, which includes providence, right? So from eternity past, planning all things for our good, now we're in the middle experiencing in time the execution of that decree. God is actually doing all things for our good. And in future glory, all those things are going to work together mysteri- like in, a, in a tapestry, like you're talking about shootings and stuff. We shouldn't, obviously, we never talk about that stuff glibly like, it doesn't matter. No, that's great evil. We should, our hearts should break for it. So we should be quick to sit, you know, weep with those who weep, all those things. At the same time, we also, in bold faith, can say, even in this, God has not ceased to be good and keep the promises to his people, right? Even this will work together for the greater good, the greater comfort of his people in glory. I, is it, um, where is it, 2 Corinthians? Uh, this, no, that's Romans 8, this momentary light affliction. I'm confusing my verses. Uh, where is it that Paul talks about is working together an eternal weight of glory? 
It's Corinthian. Yeah, okay. And the significance of that wording is that these light momentary afflictions, he doesn't just say they'll be outweighed by glory. That's, That's what Romans 8 says. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared. But in 2 Corinthians, he actually says that this light momentary affliction is working together to give us an even more enjoyable, glorious experience in heaven. So, again, purpose, like we were talking about the apologetics of God's purpose, suffering, affliction, you know, the end of Romans 8, nakedness, peril, famine, sword, all day long we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul says, yet in all this, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So, God's purpose is intertwined for our good in literally everything that we consider bad. And many things are bad. They're evil. Evil happens to us. Hurt happens to us. But all of it, ultimately, we should draw comfort that God is all wise in this. And He's for me. Oh, wait. Did we skip Aaron? And then... So... um... Brandon's earlier comment reminded me of the issue of equal ultimacy that you dealt with, not by that name, right, where you're talking about God withholding his grace from, uh, from the reprobate. Um, and uh, sorry, it just reminded me that that's another point of contention that many people have with this doctrine, where uh, people try to judge God's character and judge him uh, for his decree as though he has no right. And like you said when, when you were... Um, teaching, um, we have to remember who we are. We have to remember mm-hmm. that we are the rebels who do not deserve grace from God, who do not deserve any good thing from God. And when we have that established first, then we realize that we have no grounds to answer back to God to say, why have you made me like this? Um, so I think ultimately just a big dose of humility for the unbeliever especially yeah. is the thing that needs to happen that that is missing. And we should not be afraid that in their arrogance they're going to answer back and say, well, then if God allows that, God's not good and I can't worship a God like that, we should then point that back on them and say, you don't have a justification for what is good, what is evil. How do you even define good and evil without God? How do you define any moral standard without the God who establishes that standard? And you're the one who's actually standing here being inconsistent because you're saying that God is wrong but you don't have a standard of what wrong is, yep. right? And so we need to not be afraid that they're going to push back on us and say, that I don't like that, therefore your God is wrong. But we know that, okay, you don't like it because you're a fallen creature who is bound by your sinful nature, yep. and, and it's your pride that causes you to think that you know better than God. Amen. And to your point, by nature, I mean, the Bible tells us this, by nature, sinners don't start with a right understanding of how bad sin is. Right? So pretty much, unless in some unique case, God has kind of worked in common grace. Usually the people that we talk to, they're coming at it with the assumption that I'm pretty decent. And so when you start talking about God's judgment, if you think you're pretty decent, then yeah, that is going to sound unfair. And so we need to, to your point, we need to push back on that and not be ashamed of the doctrine of sin and the fall of man. Of like, no, you're not understanding how bad our rebellion is. Like, if they understood that, they would be starting on a different foot in terms of how they judge what's fair, what's not fair, right? So I think that's something, just, just piggybacking on what you were saying, we need to kind of keep an ear out for, because people, most of the people we enter into conversation, they've got wrong assumptions about the starting point 
of where sinners are at in their relationship to God. That if we embrace that assumption without correcting it, it's going to lead us to some really hard questions that we can't answer because we've given them that starting point which we shouldn't give them. Um, I guess almost kind of like the opposite of, of Brandon's question as far as like how does that encourage believers as far as the providence of God, his sovereignty over all things. How should it not discourage, I mean it should be a sobering reality to unbelievers and to those who aren't children of God um, that we're utterly dependent upon God's Mm -hmm. grace. But how should it not discourage people who know they're outside of Christ, who know they're in unbelief, how should it not discourage them from pursuing God when we know? If if, If prior to knowing God savingly, they understand that it's only by God's divine uh, God's uh, sovereign yeah. choice and grace that I yeah. can be saved. Yeah. I'd say a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind is that while the Christian can be assured of his election, um, the sinner cannot be assured of their reprobation in this life. So no one knows their reprobate until they're actually in hell. So In other words, if they say, I must be among the reprobate because of this sin. Well, there's always a Christian who has been guilty of that same sin, and they're now a Christian, thus proving that that doesn't disqualify you from potentially being among the elect who uh, can believe, right? So, I think in a sense, sometimes, and you have to be tender here, sometimes there's almost, it looks like humility, but it's actually an underlying pride of I can't be saved. I can't, I must be reprobate, which we need to actually gently, not to break them, but in a sense to show you're actually declaring your knowledge superior to God, what God has said. You can't know that you're among the reprobate. reprobate. God hasn't revealed that to us. And so if that's the conclusion they draw, is that, well, I just ought not to seek God, we actually need to prod them. That's the wrong response. Like when, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, and unless you're born of the Spirit and of water, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't tell Nicodemus, you're reprobate. But, and he, but he also doesn't tell Nicodemus, be born again. He just tells him, you must be born. He's simply declaring to Nicodemus, this is what must happen to you if you're going to enter the kingdom. Which at first sounds despairing, because it makes the sinner feel... I can't think of the word you used... Uh, not discouraged. There is a sense in which the doctrine of election should make us feel um, sober. sober is getting closer to Helpless. it. Helpless. Yeah, basically. That's not exactly the word. But yeah, the idea of if God doesn't save me, I won't be saved, right? That's true. But that isn't the same as telling someone, therefore, don't seek God. You know what I mean? That's not the logical conclusion the Scriptures give to that fact. The fact that Jesus says you must be born again, and unless the Spirit does it, it's not going to happen, doesn't preclude Nicodemus himself from seeking the kingdom of God, from seeking Christ, which are the means that God often uses to actually regenerate a person. You know what I mean? So, I, would, I guess I'm going all over the place. But if someone were discouraged by that, and they were understanding it and applying it wrong, I would want to clarify that... 
what it does mean and what it doesn't mean for them now. If you were talking to someone in hell, the answer would be different because their fate is sealed. But when you're talking to an unbeliever, we don't know if they're reprobate or, or elect. Um, we won't know that they're uh, elect until they believe. You know, So I would say we just have to navigate it with wisdom and make sure they don't draw bad conclusions that would lead them away from seeking God rather than it frightening them into desiring to seek God. Because that's really what it should do is I need God. I don't know how this all works, but I'm afraid because I can't save myself. And they should seek God. And whether they realize what came first, they don't know that God actually was working that within them. That doesn't matter. The point is that it should have its effect of causing them to be fearful of their current state to actually seek God kind of contrary to what they might be thinking about themselves, of I must be reprobate because I'm not seeking God. And it's like, well, that actually might be the very thing God uses to draw you to himself, if that makes sense. Aaron. Um, Two other things came to mind. One is that the issue of God decreeing the fall and yet not being the author of sin, I think is one of the most confusing things to try to wrap our heads around and try to explain. I think a definition of what exactly we mean by author of sin is important there, that we mean that God's not the one who's guilty for sin, mm-hmm. that the sin is still, the, the sinner is still accountable and responsible for the sin that comes from their own desires. Yep. Um, and then secondly, uh, piggybacking off of what you were talking about with Gary, um, I think that Oftentimes, we in the Reformed world can forget the simplicity of the ordinary means of grace. Because we know that regeneration precedes faith, we think that we're trying to wait on or work up some formula for how someone is to get this regeneration when Scripture tells us, preach the gospel, tell them to believe, tell them to trust in Christ, right? From the sinner's perspective, believing in Christ, they're not feeling regeneration. They're not identifying regeneration before they trust in Christ. They're trusting in Christ, right? And later on, as they put together what God's Word says about it, we come to understand, oh, I only trusted because the Spirit drew me, right? But they don't distinguish the Spirit drawing them from their own desires at that moment of conversion. That's not how it happens. You know, for any of us in our conversion, we didn't discern some distinct feeling that was apart from us, contrary to us, that was wanting to be saved. Well, we didn't want to be saved. It's all cohesive, right? It's the Spirit's work conforming our own wills to desire what is good and pleasing. And so within all of that, the focus too today on the ordinary means of grace, God's ordinary providence, um, I think is important for us to remember and keep fresh. It helps us to keep the simplicity of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And thank God that God can and does work despite our not understanding all those things. Because there are often cases, people, someone will come into the church and they're just all messed up, you know, like in their theology, their thinking, they don't know if they're saved and I don't know if they're saved and it feels like a big, but to your point, just keep attending to the means of grace. And it's not like I said some magical anything. It's just the way God, all of a sudden God makes it clear and they have, they have more steadiness and they're like, they're seeing it more clearly of, okay, I do believe in Christ. You know what I mean? And it kind of, sometimes those things work themselves out, not necessarily by like a super wise person being able to dissect it all, because oftentimes it's really very convoluted and you don't really know what's going on inside there, but just encourage him. Give yourself to the means of grace 
and all of a sudden you'll see that the root of the matter is there and it's being strengthened and there's stability. Ken. Yeah, I think something that was helpful for me a few years ago, working through all this decree and and uh, one of the one of the things that, and I think it was Vody or RC, maybe both of them at different times, but if you have a God that hasn't decreed all things and you have a God that only looked forward in the time to see what the sinner, what the creature would do, then, you, then you've destroyed God's omniscience because he had to look forward to learn something mm-hmm. that he didn't already know from eternity past. Yep. So if you have a, if you have a God that, that is waiting to see what we'll do, or you have a God that has to look forward in time to see what we'll do, then you don't have the God of the scriptures. You don't have the God who's created all things. Yeah. So that was kind of one of the ones that uh, really drove it home for me. Yeah. Yeah. Steph. I just wanted to uh, comment on what, what Gary was talking about, how like you would encourage unbelievers who read that and might be like fearful. I think one of the things that I thought about or learned after was that my discouragement at my state of my soul was actually a grace of God itself because it brought me to like actually seek scriptures and go to church and hear the gospel. And then um, a note regarding like what Ken was saying on, um, I can't even remember the words, so I'm just going to say what I wrote down, um, that we're thankful that God is, um, we're thankful for his providence because that shows his power. And um, you wouldn't, I think you touched on it earlier, but it would be fearful to follow a God who is not in control and you would have fear, like I think um, Calvin said, like his sovereignty is how he goes to sleep. Or Luther, or Calvin. <laughs> One of those guys said, like, that's the pillow that he lays his head on at night. And it's encouragement. Like, even, even to the kids, when they get scared, you could, they could pray. And they know God's in control of all things. Mm-hmm. So that's a comfort. Yeah. That without um, knowing of his providence, that you, can't, you couldn't rely on. Yeah. Brandon? Just a quick comment. Uh, one of the things that I really like that you had said about the evangelistic or apologetic point, especially on providence, is uh, to be bold about believing that God is actually in control of everything. Yeah. Uh, check yourself when you say things like, I got lucky. Or, I got what? I got lucky. Uh, or, you know, yeah. by chance it happened. Yeah. You know, yeah. not, I mean, I know those are, you know, things that we say and it's just been rooted in our culture, yeah. but, and being bold about when someone says, wow, that all happened for you <laughs> by the grace of God and his providence yeah. and, and not, not being that something that's embarrassing or not true because it's the most objectively true thing that we can say about yeah. why things happen yeah. in the, whatever happens. Yeah, yeah. It's good. 